us. We all have opinions about the topics of gender, sex, marriage, and singleness. And most of us, I, I would actually venture out and probably say every single one of us, have offenses connected to these issues. Relational brokenness and sexual brokenness. If I was to ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not going to do that this morning because it is a sensitive topic, but if I was to ask for a raise of hands to see who has been impacted by marital conflict, I would guess almost every hand in this room would go up. And if I was to ask for a raise of, for, for the lifting of hands of people who have been affected by a divorce, I bet many hands in this room would go up. If I was asked to ask you to raise your hands for those who have been sexually abused, hands in this room would go up. If I was asked you to, if I was to ask of you who's been impacted by adultery, hands in this room would go up. If I was to ask you who's dealt with gender confusion hands in this room would go up. If I was to ask you who has struggled with or struggles with same-sex attraction, hands in this room would go up. And if I was to ask you who deals with sexual dissatisfaction, hands in this room would go up. This issue hits all of us closely and deeply. I can't cover all that the scriptures cover on this topic this morning, so I want to point you to a few resources if you want to go deeper on these issues. One is Tim Keller has a book called The Meaning of Marriage, a great book on marriage, and it covers all these topics, so I encourage you to check that book out. Christopher Ewan, a book called Holy Sexuality, will take you deeper on these topics, a great read. Jackie Perry Hill has a book called Gay Girl, Good God that just came out, an incredible read to deal with these topics, to go deeper with these topics, and a few more. Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, has a sermon series called A Beautiful Design, a nine-week series that goes deeper than we're going to go this morning. I encourage you to check that out. Rosaria Butterfield has a book called Secret Thoughts of a Unlikely Convert, and I encourage you to check that book out, an incredible read. And then lastly, Redeeming Singleness by Barry Danlick. And so those are some resources that I encourage you to check out to go deeper on this topic because today we're only going to scratch the surface. But I do want to get into it. And even more so than that, I, wanna, I want you to flip over to Second Peter chapter 1. It's on page 1018 in the Pew Bible, and I highly encourage you to, to bring a Bible and look at it. If you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, use the Pew Bible and get your eyes on God's Word here this morning. This passage is not going to be on the screen. I want you to flip to it, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's on page 1018 in the Pew Bible. As we deal with this heavy and sensitive topic, I want us to hear a promise from God for us. God says, God's word, God speaks through his man, Peter, who writes this to us, his people. He promises us. He says in verse 3, his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us, that's you and I here this morning in Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence. I'll stop there with just that verse. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And this topic today, gender, marriage, sex, and singleness, certainly involves all of life, does it not? 
And God has given us in his spirit, in his word, all that we need to navigate life with sexual and relational brokenness. And all that we need through his spirit to find his will, his purpose, his ways for this topic. And I want to deal with this topic very sensitively this morning because I know that all of us have been affected by it in one way or another. And I ask for you to just to, to, to receive what you hear this morning humbly with a listening ear. Some of you, I, I know some of you are going to walk away disagreeing with some of it. Some of you aren't going to like it. Some of you, you may feel kind of this internal rally cry like I knew I was right all along and I would encourage you don't feel that. If you feel that way, it means that, that you don't understand the brokenness that comes in this area of life that is all-consuming for so many people. So let's get back to the text. Flip back to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start by looking at the context here. As we need to do with any text of Scripture, we need to know the context that where we are situated in God's Word, in God's Scripture. So Matthew chapter 19 starts, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, what things has Jesus just got done saying? Those of you who are here last week, you should remember it's in chapter 18. What has Jesus just taught his disciples about? Forgiveness. So as Jesus teaches a hard truth on gender, marriage, sex, and singleness, it comes right out of his teaching on forgiveness. Keep that in mind. Jesus, as he teaches hard truths, he's doing it in the context of relationship. He's doing it in the context of people that he cares about, people that he was, he's already instructed many things towards. He has, he's not just kind of coming at them from the side. He's not coming at them from a distance. He's not sitting at a computer screen blogging his thoughts for the world to see. He's, he's speaking to people that he knows. He's walking with these people. He has relationships with these people. And he has just taught them on forgiveness. He has just taught them that God has forgiven us through him, through Jesus, in unpayable debt. And therefore, we ought to forgive others. We ought to forgive those who have wronged us. We ought to forgive those who have sinned against us. That's what we saw in Matthew chapter 18 as we talked about last week. So keep that in mind. As we talk about gender, as we talk about marriage and sex and singleness, keep in mind this attitude, this heart posture from God that we are to forgive others, that we are to have compassion on those who have wronged us, that we have, are to have compassion on those who don't understand God's truths. Jesus has relationship with the people that he's instructing. He's speaking hard truths. Yes, he is. They're countercultural truths, but it's in the context of deep and meaningful relationship. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings about forgiveness, that's the context, he's just moved from that, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Keep that in mind for context as well. He's in these close, deep, intimate, meaningful relationships with people, and he's healing them. He's meeting their physical needs. He's, he's healing their diseases. He cares about them holistically as people. Again, he's not removed, just lobbing truth bombs at culture or at people. He's deep, he's close, he's intimate, he's face-to-face. -face. He knows these people. 
He knows their idols. He knows their challenges. He knows their struggles. He knows their joys. He knows their brokenness. And so Jesus has just taught us the context of what we're about to look at. Keep in mind, he's just taught us about forgiveness. And he's showing us that that when you come to proclaim God's truth to people, there's something significant about being in relationship with people. Jesus knows these people. He's healed these people. So that's the context. Let's move on to the question. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the Pharisees are religious leaders, and we see here in the context of this text that the crowds following Jesus, some are Pharisees, religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. Some are his disciples, which we're going to see here in verse 10, that the disciples are present. Some are just crowds. They're people who are interested. They're, they're curious about this Jesus person who's healing people, who's teaching hard, hard truths, but he's showing compassion and love, and he's challenging the religious leaders. He's challenging the culture. He's challenging those who are following him. So this crowd of people is following Jesus. Among them are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They came up to him to test him. Notice that. Is their question genuine when they say, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife for any cause? Is their question genuine? It may be. They may be looking for his answer to that question. And in fact, I think they are based off the context of the passage, but they have this motivation in their heart to test Jesus. They want to put Jesus into a camp. Sometimes we engage in these hard conversations with people and all they really want to do is put us into a camp or all we really want to do is put them into a camp. What are you for? What are you against? Are you this politically? Are you that politically? Are you this theologically? Are you that theologically? Do you align with me or do you align with others? The Pharisees are testing Jesus. They're trying to put him into a camp. There was two camps that existed in this day regarding divorce among the Jews. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let's flip over there and we'll see it in context. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24. It's on page 165 in the Pew Bible. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then... Her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you for an inheritance. And so here's the divorce law in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And so there's two camps that exist in interpreting this law. One camp is that a man can divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. If she makes a bad pot of soup and you're displeased, this, this indecency that, is, that is, it says here, if, they find, if a man finds indecency in his wife, that indecency could be making a bad pot of soup. You're able to discard her, throw her away, divorce her. That's one camp. 
The other camp is that a man is able to divorce his wife for sexual immorality, for adultery. And so these are the two camps that exist, and the Pharisees are trying to figure out which camp is Jesus in. Now, can you imagine the type of culture that would be created if this law said that, you could, that a man can discard or divorce his wife if he finds any indecency as, as, as small as making a bad pot of soup? I mean, in the culture, women are treated as property. They are men's property for men to do with what they want. That's the type of culture that would be created here. And so these religious leaders are trying to figure out which camp is Jesus in. That's what they're trying to do. And I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't directly answer the question. Verse 4, it says, he answered, but he gives this long, he, uh, he gives a response more than an answer. That's what we're going to look at here. Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to this question? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Which camp are you in, Jesus? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Or can a man only divorce his wife for adultery? Listen how Jesus answers. He answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes on to give a biblical vision. He doesn't just answer the question. He doesn't put himself into a camp. In engaging the question of the culture, in engaging this idea of relational brokenness and sexual brokenness, Jesus doesn't go to religious interpretations or to cultural opinions. That's important for us to know. We live in a culture where there is, there is our culture and God's word, they, they don't always agree. They're not always compatible. And people will ask you questions. Some of them will be testing you to see which camp you land in. Where, what do you believe on this? Or what do you believe on that? Are you for me or are you against me? Jesus doesn't first go to religious interpretation. He doesn't say, well, well, you Jewish leaders, you have these two camps, you interpret this this way, here's why you should, here's why you shouldn't. He doesn't get into the theological debate, the religious interpretation debate. He doesn't spend his time there. He doesn't also, nor does he go into the cultural opinions. What does he do? First thing that he does is he gives them a biblical vision. He wants to remind them of how God set up life to work. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? And he's assuming that because these are religious leaders that they've read God's word. Now, we can't do that with the culture who's not a part of our church, who, who don't claim to know God or follow God. And so this, I wouldn't recommend doing this with the larger culture to say, well, haven't you read God's word? It's in the Bible. You are so wrong on all your beliefs. It's right here. But I think in the church, we should push one another to say, if we're claiming to be followers of Christ, have we read do we know God's word? That's where Jesus starts with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Have you not read? Have you not read Genesis 1 and 2? Do you not know God's biblical vision, God's standard, God's ideal? Have you not read that he who created them, God, from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created all things in the beginning, and he spoke his word and all things came into being. Have you not read that? He who created them in the beginning made them male and female. So there's an answer on gender. 
Jesus pushes them to go back to the, the grand story, to get a biblical vision of sexuality. And it starts with gender. Male and female, he created them. Our, our bodies show that. They prove that. Now, in our broken world, we have gender dysphoria because we are broken. A few weeks ago, we talked about it. In, in looking at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we talked about the fall the brokenness of man, because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they eat, ate the forbidden fruit, we are all sinners now by nature and choice. We've inherited this sinful nature and we have participated in sin. And because of that, we are so broken. We are broken. We have a broken relationship with God. We have a broken relationship with self. We have a broken relationship with others. And we have a broken relationship with creation. So what we see unravel in Genesis chapter 3. And so, because of brokenness, because of sin, we have a broken relationship with self. And so, gender confusion, gender dysphoria exists because of the brokenness of our world. It could be a result of a, a physical birth defect. There may be people who, who they struggle to identify with what their body tells them that they are because there's physical defects. And oh, how we ought to have compassion for somebody who's struggling to understand their body, who doesn't understand why things don't work in their body the way that they should, or abuse, or abuse. Sometimes people struggle with gender dysphoria, with, with identifying that the gender that, that they were born with, because as a child, I, I've heard this story a few times, that, that a young boy or a young girl, as a child, they may grow up, and if they see abuse from one parent to another, or from, a, from one gender to the other, they will associate that gender being weaker, for example, if a little girl grows up and she, from her earliest memories, sees her mom being abused or beaten by a man, she may think that this, this, this can happen psychologically. Well, to be female is to be weak. I don't want to be female. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be weak. And so gender dysphoria can happen as the earliest memories of that little girl are female. To be female means to be weak, to be beaten, to be abused. Therefore, they have this gender confusion, and, and they want to be a man to, be, to protect themselves, and it can work vice versa. So we, church, we need to have extreme compassion. It's a complex issue. It's a broken issue. It's a result of the fall. We, like Jesus, need to be close. We need to be near. We need to know people's stories. We need to know why they're struggling with the things that they're struggling with. But in the midst of that, we uphold the biblical vision. The beautiful vision of the Bible, the beautiful, the beautiful vision of God's creation is that he has created us male and female. Male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one Flesh And as male and female come together, they, they are wedded. They, they make a lifelong commitment, a covenant commitment to one another. And that's the context for which sex exists. The biblical vision is that God has created us male and female, two genders, male and female. And he has created us to be in relationship with one another. The male and the female body uniquely fit together. The male and the female body are able to procreate. They're able to keep humanity going. The biblical vision is that God created male and female to put us into relationship, deep, intimate, meaningful relationship 
of marriage, where we would become one flesh. Look at that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's upholding this biblical vision. Haven't you read that in the beginning God made them male and female? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What a beautiful vision of relationship and sex and marriage that God is giving us. That Jesus is reiterating to his sheep, to his followers. They shall, they shall become one flesh. This, this represents God's relationship in the Trinity. God is one being, three persons. Okay, so this is a hard, confusing theological truth to understand. In fact, we can't fully understand it. It's mysterious, but God is one being. Three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think what's happening here is God is saying that in marriage, we reflect the Trinitarian relationship by becoming one being with our spouse, but two distinct persons. When Brittany and I got married and we consummated our marriage, we became one flesh. Isn't this a beautiful picture of sex and marriage and relationship? given to us by God, reiterated to us by Jesus, that the ultimate, the best, the the biblical vision of marriage is that my wife and I come together and God deeply knits us together as one flesh. We are one being with two distinct persons. She thinks certain things about certain things and I think certain things about certain things. That's a very eloquent sentence, isn't it? And and early on, this was very apparent in our marriage. We would have disagreements and arguments, and sometimes I, like a fool, would grin in the midst of those arguments, and she would be like, would you stop grinning? This isn't funny. I'm like, I think it's beautiful, though. We are two different people learning to become one. We are figuring this thing out. And so God's picture of marriage is that you become one with a spouse, with a lifelong mate in a covenant commitment of marriage. That's what we do when we wed people. They stand before God and the cloud of witnesses and they say, I will live with you. I will stay with you. I commit my life to you till death do us part for better or for worse. That's the biblical vision of marriage. And what a beautiful picture this is that God has brought us together. It's not good that man should be alone. And so he made a a fit counterpart, a a complementing equal to Adam. Adam and Eve are complementing equals, both created in the image of God with different gifts, with different personalities, with different ideals, and God has put them together as one. This is the biblical vision of marriage. And it's ultimately what the human heart wants. The human heart wants this deep, intimate, close relationship with someone that we can trust, with someone that can trust us, with someone that can be vulnerable with us, with someone that can bear it all, with somebody who we can be one flesh with. One man, one woman, married for life, and then after that comes sex and baby in the baby carriage. Remember that song? Now, that's not the common reality in our culture. It's not the common reality in our churches. It's extremely rare to find couples engaged to be married, doing premarital counseling with them, and find out that one or both of them are virgins. This just isn't the culture that we live in. It's the biblical vision given to us, but it's not the culture that we live in, and it wasn't the culture that they lived in. So that's where the next part of this comes. 
verses 7 through 9, show us a biblical allowance given by God to help minimize the damage created to us by our hardness of hearts. Okay, so he gives them this beautiful biblical vision of marriage, and the Pharisees respond, verse 7, and they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Okay, so they ask this cultural question. They're trying to test Jesus. Where do you land? Which camp do you land in on Deuteronomy chapter 24? Divorce for any reason or divorce just for adultery. And he gives them the biblical vision of marriage. Here's what marriage is. It's lifelong. It's a man and a woman in the context and covenant commitment of marriage. They are, they are here to procreate, to enjoy one another, to mirror God's image more fully as two complementing different people becoming one. That's what he gives them, and they say, well, if that's the case, if that's the vision of marriage, if that's the glory of marriage, then why did Moses allow people to get divorced? Why did he allow these marriages to be ended? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is an allowance for divorce, and they, he, they're not even into interpreting that yet. Just saying, why is divorce even allowed if that's the biblical vision of marriage? And Jesus says, verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. One of the things that we have to realize is some of the laws in the Old Testament are allowances. God, God gives us certain laws to help from minimizing damage that we've created. So the marriage allowance in Deuteronomy 24, that's not God's ideal it's not God's moral law. It's not his ideal law. It's not a picture of what God wants for his people. It's the reality that God is saying, my, my people have hardened their hearts against my ways. Men are disrespecting women. They are using women for their own gain. They are treating women as property. And that's not the biblical vision of marriage. The biblical vision of marriage is man and woman created equal. And they are to rule the earth together. They are, they are to procreate and create more little creatures to rule and have dominion over the earth and to enjoy life together. And that's not the cultural reality that we live in. Because of sin, because of brokenness, men are using women for their own selfish gain as their own property. And so therefore, to help minimize the damage or to give you an allowance to work around this severe situation, I, God, have allowed Moses to write a law that Divorce is allowable. That's the reality in which we live. And so as we read the scriptures, we have to understand that not everything that God has communicated, not every law in the Old Testament reflects God's ideal. God always upholds his ideal. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why he starts with the biblical vision. He's upholding God's ideal. He's saying, here's what's good for you. Here's why God created this. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to work for. Here's the ideal, and here's the reality that you live. And so here's some laws to help you navigate that reality to help minimize damage. And so that's why the divorce law is given, why it's there. And then Jesus gets into interpreting it, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus weighs in on the debate, he says, here's the reasons why divorce is allowed, sexual immorality, adultery. Now, there's other scriptures, first, um, other scriptures that kind of help us, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which make allowance for 
abandonment if a believing spouse leaves an unbelieving spouse, and certainly we would have discussions about abuse. And we're not going to discover today, we're not going to talk today about the details of what constitutes divorce and when it's right, when it's wrong. What I want you to see is God's biblical vision for gender, for marriage, for sex, and we're going to get to singleness. That's what we started with. And now this biblical allowance, it, it shows us, it reminds us that we live in this broken world which doesn't function as God intended it to, to function. And so Jesus upholds the ideal. He says, here's the ideal. And, and Christians, and even if you're non-Christians in this room, shouldn't we work towards that ideal? What a beautiful picture that God has created us uniquely different but completely equal man and woman to exist in a lifelong covenant marriage with one another where we would only know one another sexually, intimately in that space. And if God allows us to procreate out of that and to have this tight, intimate relationship, that's the biblical vision. But the earthly reality is not that. And so God has given us this allowance, this concession for divorce. And then verse 10 through 12, he moves into what, what I'm calling the biblical purpose. And this deals with singleness here. And the disciples said to him, so the disciples are present. He's speaking first to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are asking him these questions, and the disciples are present. And they're listening. They're, they're gaining this information, this teaching from Jesus. And they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better to not Mary. They're saying, if, if that's the vision of marriage, and that seems so impossible in our culture, why would anyone get married? If marriage is lifelong and you can't divorce your wife over a bad pot of soup, or, or even ultimately because of adultery, if, if God has intended this to be a lifelong commitment, which is incredibly hard to work through because we hurt one another, we disappoint one another, our bodies don't always function and work the way that we wish they would, we live in this broken, fallen world. If, if here's the biblical vision and here's the earthly, earthly reality, why not just avoid marriage altogether? Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Jesus isn't upholding marriage as the ultimate standard for life. Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, a eunuch, we don't have many, we don't use this language today. These are people who have been castrated. And, and Jesus is using eunuchs here as a, as a as symbolism for those who will live their lives without getting married without having sex. Can you imagine that? I mean, our culture has idolized marriage and sex, right? Can you imagine if somebody was to tell you, I plan on living my life without getting married and without having sex, you would look at them cross-eyed. That's not our culture. Jesus is saying that there is this group of people who will live their lives without getting married or without having sex. And that is a good thing. He says that, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, whether it's a birth defect, a, a physical issue which is causing this category of person to live their life without having sex, without getting married. 
Or maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a mental issue that they're not able to properly cause their body to function in a way where they're able to have sex. Or maybe there's something wrong with them in a way where they're displeasing to people and this person will never be married because there's something physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually broken in them and they will be this way. They will be a single for life without having sex. Those people exist today. They have to face the reality of life without living as the common society lives. There are eunuchs who were made this way by men. And this is kings would often have many concubines and wives in their palace. So kings in this context, they would have hundreds if not thousands of wives. And then they would have male servants to help take care of their lands, to help take care of their stuff. And the kings didn't want the male servants to sleep with their wives so they would castrate them. If you think the Bible's boring, you haven't been paying attention while you read it. This is a reality of the cultural context. And so he's saying some are made eunuchs by men. Some male servants have been castrated out of fear that they would sleep with other people's wives. That's an easy way to solve adultery, just castrate those who are in offense or who are in a position to possibly do that. Jesus is saying There's, those people exist. It's a category of people who will live their life without having sex, without getting married. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There's people in the category of they will be single their entire life. They will live their lives without having sex for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So God gives this beautiful picture of marriage, but but Jesus is also saying that that's not the only way to live life. You can live your life as a single male or female to the glory of God, to the advancement of his kingdom. Amen, church? And the Apostle Paul goes on to elaborate on this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He actually says, and, and I love this, he says, I'm speaking now, not God. Most of scripture is God's authoritative inspired word, but Paul inserts his own opinion. Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was single his entire life. And he says, I wish You are all as I am. I wish you were all single because you could do more for the kingdom of God if you were single, if you didn't have to take care of your spouses, if you didn't have to work through all your marital conflict, if you didn't have to raise kids, you could do so much more for the kingdom of God. But he says, not everyone can do that. And in fact, God created marriage to reflect his glory, but he also created singles to reflect his glory. He created mankind, male and female, to reflect his glory. And so, singles, there is a place for you in the kingdom of God. And The American church is really bad at holding this up. I mean, how often is it that you meet somebody who's single and a little bit older, and you're, and you single people, you know this, people are like, oh, I got someone I should set you up with. Maybe they don't want to be set up. Maybe they're living their lives as a metaphorical eunuch for the kingdom of God. And so, church, we need to keep in mind, and I think this flows us into the end of the sermon where we need to all come down to is, is the kingdom of God more important to us and and, and more all-satisfying and more all-consuming for us than our gender, than our marital status or our marital health, than our sexual life and fulfillment and our singleness? Is the kingdom of God all-consuming. If you wrap your mind around the kingdom of God, if, if you do what Jesus closes out here with saying, some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, well, whether you're single or whether you're married, 
your life is to be all about advancing the kingdom of heaven. And so if that becomes all-consuming, issues of gender, issues of marriage, issues of sexuality, and issues of singleness, married singleness, kind of your marital status, become less, less important. We, church, are to be consumed with the kingdom of God. And so a couple questions to close with. Number one, is the creator better than creation? I want you to ask yourself, whether you're a Christian or not in this room, what are you living for? Are you living for created things? Because those can be taken away like that. If you're living for relationship or for marriage, it can be taken away like that. If you're living for sexual fulfillment, it can be taken away like that. I watch a lot of baseball. The World Series just happens and When you watch the World Series, all of the commercials are about ED, erectile dysfunction. Apparently, the older you get, the harder it is to find sexual fulfillment. That's why they have drugs and pills to help. It can be taken like that. If that's what you're living for, you're going to be seriously depressed and underwhelmed. So church, is the creator, is God, is his vision for life, is he as a person in the person of Jesus Christ better than what he's given us as a gift. He's given all these things as a gift. We can and should enjoy marriage and sex and relationships and singleness to the glory of God. It's a good gift. But don't elevate it above the giver. Second question. Do you have a firm enough identity in Jesus that you don't need to seek it elsewhere? Do you have a firm enough identity in Jesus, that you don't need to find your identity in your gender, that that's secondary to your identity in Christ, that you don't need to find your identity as somebody who's married or who wants to be married or somebody who's happily married, but your identity is so wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ that you're fulfilled. And last question, is your relationship with Jesus intimate enough to satisfy your deepest needs. That, that, that's why Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. You don't come to church and do your religious duties and serve and give money and do things to try and please God. Jesus came to give us a relationship with the living God. And, and we are created to have this deep, intimate, abiding relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, that our deepest needs are met by Him. Not by figuring out our sexual orientation. Not by finding sexual fulfillment in or out of marriage. Not by finding a spouse for a lifetime, but in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Let me pray. Jesus, I do ask that you would be our one satisfying desire. You have given us marriage. You have given us gender. You have given us sex. You have given us singles and singleness for your glory, for our good, and for the advancement of your kingdom. And so we thank you for those gifts. But they all are secondary to exactly that prayer, your glory are good in the advancement of your kingdom. So I pray that we would be swept up 
with thoughts of your kingdom. I pray that we would be consumed by you. I pray that we would be satisfied by you. I pray that we would be filled by you. And I pray that we would be people of compassion who understand the brokenness of the world and are close enough to see it, close enough to forgive people who have wronged us and people who have been wronged and close enough to bring healing to the nations. God, may you meet us each where we're at this morning. Lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We don't need to seek pleasure in any place other than you. So I pray now, even here in this space, in this moment, that we would experience your presence and the pleasure that it gives. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.